It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, October 9th, 2014. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here as usual. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight. Good to be with you as well. Look forward to hearing from you on the program at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com, and in the chat room to the bottom of your video feed tonight. We welcome you to chime in there. And we'll look forward to hearing from Monty behind the controls tonight. Monty, welcome back. Thank you, Jacob. It's good to be here. been out of town for a while. It's been a while since you were in that seat, but we're glad that you're here. And uh, we'll look forward to the discussion tonight. Well, I was interested tonight, this morning when I got your message, I guess it was around noon today, uh, of, the, of the topic uh, planned for tonight, uh, various questions as we usually do, but this uh, set of questions has to rank, in my opinion, at the top of questions that are interesting. I think we've got some really interesting questions yeah. here. So uh, if you're not on our update list, you didn't get these list, this list of questions we're going to discuss tonight, but you can be by sending us email, questions at collegeview.com. And put just add me to the list uh, in your subject line. That list continues to grow. And it still grows. So uh, we'd be glad to get you informed each week about what we're going to be talking about. And, and I'm like you, Jacob. I think these are really some interesting ones. So let's yeah. just dive right in. All right. Number one, here from Keith. He says, what is the meaning of no, oh, excuse me. What is the meaning of, quote, oh, no man, anything in Romans 13, verse 8? Is it wrong for a Christian to have debt? If so, could one possibly avoid doing it in a social setting, in this social setting where, and he mentions housing and, and education are so expensive? And if it's sinful for a Christian to have debt, would it not also be wrong for a congregation to have debt, for instance, in a church building and so forth? All right. Uh, one thing I read in Keith's question, um, and it's probably a side point, but I'm starting on, on a side point. If it's wrong, it's wrong in whatever setting you're I was just going to comment about that, just because it may be difficult. Well, yeah. I, I couldn't afford a house if it's wrong to go into debt. Well, yeah. that doesn't prove it's not wrong to go into debt. Yeah, so I couldn't afford college if it's wrong to go well, – Then don't go to college. Yeah. If it's wrong, it's wrong. So right. you can't, you can't yeah. argue, well, th- th- this setting makes it necessary even though it's wrong. It's impossible. So that's, 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 okay. and, and I don't think – I'm not sure that Chris – I mean, excuse me, I'm not sure that uh, Keith – intended that, but but I just wanted to clarify that because it could be interpreted that way, what he said. All right, so he wants to know about that. He goes to Romans chapter 13, verse 8, quotes, O man, know anything. Uh, O no man, anything. Uh, Let's read the whole verse. O no man, anything except to love one another, for he who loves another hath fulfilled the law. So there's the verse from Romans 13, verse 8. Um, And so the question is, and it's a question many have had, is it wrong to have a debt? Because if I have a debt, then, well, I owe someone something. So is that a violation of Romans 13, verse 8? I think our email respondents have probably got this thing nailed down pretty tight. Uh, Ramon in Texas says this goes back to verses 6 and 7 where he's talking about paying your taxes. If you are to pay your taxes, that is a debt. Then he goes on to point out about love, saying, oh, no man, anything but love. Pay all your debts, and the one debt you always pay and never really have paid is the debt of love. It's not wrong, she says, to have debt, but we must pay it back. Do not be careless. You know, the way I've explained that, Jacob, it's not, it doesn't say do not incur debt. It didn't say that. It said, owe no man anything. And so if you had a mortgage on your house, but you were current on it, in other words, every month when the, when the house payments due, you've been paying faithfully. If you were to contact the bank and say, do I owe you anything? They would say, no, oh. you're, you're current. Okay. Right? So it's not, and so you, you, you have a debt that you're paying, a mortgage debt that you're paying, but you're paying it in accordance with an agreement you made with the bank. You've made a covenant agreement with the bank and you're keeping your end of the bargain. And so you are not owing them right now. Now, next month when the bill comes due, if you paid on time, you're still current. You're not owing. You're not, 
And, and so I, th- I think that may be the best explanation I can give. All right. Uh, so I think it, you're coming up, up with the idea that you need to make good on your promises. You need to make sure that you don't default on uh, the things that you owe. Let's look at Jim from uh, Kentucky. He says, uh, Romans 13, verse 8, within the context of this passage, the inspired Apostle Paul was talking about our duty to others and not specifically about financial debt. We are to be, verse 1, subject to higher powers. We owe them our obedience. Verse 2, to reject those powers, authority, government, is to reject God's plan. Verses 3 and 4, God established rulers for our good, not for evil purposes. Verse 5, we therefore are to be in subjection to them. Verses 6 and 7 of Romans 13, we are therefore to pay our taxes, tribute, etc., whatever is required by law. Therefore, verse 8, we are not to be in debt, not in debt of our duty. Not in debt of subjection, not in debt of paying our tribute or custom. What we are to pay in the utmost is our love to our fellow man because of our love for God. So thank you for that, Jim. Appreciate your analysis. Okay, I think it's good. I think it's all good. Okay. Uh, uh, and and we have one more email, but didn't deal with that question. Chris in the UK, who is listening in the chat room again tonight, glad to have you, Chris, that is not a prohibition of, on borrowing money, which Scripture permits and regulates. He references Exodus 22, verse 25, Leviticus 25, verses 35 through 37, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, Nehemiah 5, verse 7, Psalm 15, verse 5, 32, verse 21 and 26, Ezekiel 22, verses 12, verse 12. And then we, he gets to the New Testament. He references Matthew chapter 5, verse 42. Let me read that one. And I'm, Luke chapter 6, verse 32. I'm kind of drawing a blank there. 540. Right. 542 says, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. Well, that's interesting. It's kind of interesting. If, in other words, if it's wrong to borrow, Jesus would, would have said, be, That guy who's trying to borrow from you, don't give it to him because he's not supposed to be asking right. anyway. If it's wrong to borrow, then it would be by default wrong to lend because you're assisting with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Luke 6, verse 32. Uh, but if you love those who love you, what credit is it to, to you? For even sinners love those who love them. So I'm not sure exactly the reference there in Luke 6, verse 32. But it is an interesting verse in Matthew 5, verse 42. Paul's point, he goes on, is that all of our financial obligations must be paid when they are due. In debt, we are to be, uh, the, in debt, we are, the only debt we are to be in is uh, of love, and we are not to be lacking in that to both believer and non-believer alike. It is a command of God, and by doing so, we show our love for the Lord. Thank I think, you, Chris. yeah, I think that's got that. Uh, Rick in the chat room references, uh, Psalm 37, 21, the wicked borrow and payeth not again. It doesn't say that, that it's wicked to borrow. It's wicked to borrow and pay not again. Yeah. And so I, I believe that's the right answer to that question. Monty, any th- any thoughts on that, Monty? Well, I agree that that seems to be the gist of it is that, especially in the first script, it's talking about that we are we owe tribute and honor to various different governmental authorities, as he's talking about. And basically what he's saying is don't get behind on it. Keep up your obligations. Do what you're supposed to do. Yeah, right. because they're going to send you a – if you hadn't already got yours, I got mine last week, your property tax bill. Well, if you don't pay that on time, then you're owing. Yeah. But they give you until this date certain to pay that property tax bill. And when you do, then... Then you're all even again. You're all you even. don't and, owe and anything. That's right. But now that I, I do have the bill, but I do delay paying it. I'm sure you gentlemen do as well. I mean, so But it's you, not, oh, it's not, it's not, not right, due right. until February. Right. I don't know why they... Uh, that's another point, but I don't know why they send them out so early. Uh, okay. Good right. chance for me to lose it. Hey, hey, but, hey, but Romans chapter 13 says pay your taxes, and so you're going to do I'm that. I'm going to do it. Hey, now, there are he, – he does the listener, Keith, does ask questions. He's, is it wrong for a Christian to have debt? Not on the surface, but I think there are occasions when it would be wrong for a Christian to have debt, uh, when he puts himself in a position where he's not going to be able to pay his debt, for instance. I mean, and it's very well, easy yeah. in, the, in the society we live in today to get yourself in a position where there's no way in the world you could pay your debt. Yeah. Thanks and, for and, and, that's, and, and I think that's what Romans 13 would speak to. Then I'm setting myself up to be owing yeah. and not being able to pay. Yeah. And, and I, there, there are other instances, I think, when incurring debt would be wrong. And that would be if, if, uh, if incurring the debt is a result of lack of contentment on your part. And, and covetousness, which I think a lot of debt yep. in our society today is uh, incurred because people aren't content, Monty. We've got to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. And even though my financial capabilities, my job or whatever doesn't pay enough to do it, I feel like I've got to have a new whatever because they've got one 
or maybe I've got to have a better one than they've yeah. got. So I go into debt to do those things. Well, then my motivation is wrong. So therefore, whatever it takes for me to fulfill that yeah. is wrong also. All right. And so you're going to have to make a you're going to make a, a personal judgment on that. But you need to ask yourself if, if okay, so I'm going to go into debt for this item. Am I living consistent with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, which says, Let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. Does my going into debt for this betray the attitude that I'm content with the things that I have? I think also it would be wrong for us to go into debt or to obligate ourselves to the point that we don't have any money left over to give to God when when it's time for us to make our offering on the first day of the week. There you go. Uh, that should come out first. When we get our paycheck, that needs to come out first and, yeah. and be set aside, and then we live on whatever is left over. But so many people don't do that. They they live on everything first and then just give God what's left over. They've got their priorities out of order. Or, and furthermore, Monty, I guess it would be possible to uh, to go into debt in such a way that you've uh, allowed for every dollar that you make, and when the emergency arises where you have an opportunity and a need to help someone else, you're, you're not in a position to do that. Yeah, and Ephesians, uh, what you yep. just said reminded me of Ephesians 4.28. That's right. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Well, if I've obligated myself for every dollar that I make with buying things, consumables for myself, then I am then then I I still don't have anything and to I'm give to And I'm not working for yeah. the reasons that yeah. I was told to work for yeah. there in yeah. Ephesians chapter 4. Yeah. All right. Now, the the, the second, the, just a, the side, sort of the side question from Keith was, what about a, a church uh, going into debt to con- construct a church building, for instance? Yeah. Well, I don't think, you know, we've, we've said it's not wrong to incur debt. It's wrong to incur debt and not pay it, to be owing. And so I don't think the principle of Romans 13.8 would be any more applicable to a congregation of people than it is to an individual Christian. Uh, okay. But I do have some questions about it. Well, it, it's the it's the uh, I think it goes to what we've talked about before. It's, and we, we don't need to get clear off in that. But do we have an does does the church have authority for a church building? I think yes. Therefore. Expedient judgments must be made to provide for that. And so. I, I would say that, yes, uh, you, a church can. I think, you know, it, it's really almost getting out of hand, though, in many instances. Churches are spending exorbitant amounts of money for, for church buildings. It, it is so very expensive. Construction is so very expensive in this day that I think you have to really think twice about that. It puts the church in potentially a bad position. And and, and plus – if we're spending all our money for for a building payment and the interest on the money we borrowed, then that's really going to handcuff us in being able to do other more important things uh, with the money. All right. All right. Uh, Chris in the U.K. says don't do it recklessly to fund a lifestyle to keep up with the Joneses. We I think that's that, surely Chris. right. Thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. I uh, think we've covered that. All right. Let's, uh, grab a, let's grab our first break, and then we're going to go to a serious question from Chris. Chris is in the chat room, and he's got a question for us about baptism. You know, Chris is, is a regular listener to Virtual Bible Study. We love having him over there in England listening. Uh, and I think it's clear from the question he asked that we have not made ourselves clear enough about baptism. So we'll try to straighten that out. Spend a few minutes talking about Chris's question on baptism and what we think it uh, does. Rick in the chat room says, closely related, owing to the point of filing bankruptcy and not paying debts, uh, Chapter 7, this is surely sinful, he says. Uh, So we do want to pay our debts, and absolutely thank you, Rick, for that comment. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we get back, we'll talk about Chris's question on baptism. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study will continue right after this. Don't go anywhere. You might miss something. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. This is Monty Overton, a member of the College View Church of Christ. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study. We appreciate your interest in the Bible. It is, after all, God's message to us. We thought you might be encouraged by a poem written by A.Z. Conrad entitled, The Bible Stands. It goes like this. Century follows century. There it stands. Empires rise and fall and are forgotten. There it stands. Dynasty succeeds dynasty. There it stands. Kings are crowned and uncrowned. There it stands. Emperors decree its extermination. There it stands. Atheists rail against it. There it stands. Agnostics smile cynically. There it stands. Profane, prayerless punsters caricature it. There it stands. Unbelief abandons it. There it stands. Higher critics deny its claimed inspiration. There it stands. 
The flames are kindled against it. There it stands. The tooth of time gnaws but makes no dent in it. There it stands. Infidels predict its abandonment. There it stands. Modernism tries to explain it away. There it stands. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Start where you are. Use what you have. Do what you can. Run when you can. Walk when you have to. Crawl if you must. Just never give up. Resentment is like drinking poison expecting the other guy to die. You may try and fail, but never fail to try. Man, wish I'd said that. See, I told you we'd be back. The virtual Bible study continues. And we're back on the program as we look at various listener questions tonight. Now we're going to roll into a question from Chris on baptism. Yeah. Uh, Chris sent a, a while back. Now, this has been a month or two. Let's see, about a month ago. Uh, he sent in a long uh, email to me, and I, I and he, he has said, you know, I could read some of that, but it's just way too long. It would take most of the rest of the hour to read it. Uh, so I'm not going to read it all. But his question basically is, would you replace the blood of Christ with the water of a baptistry? Do you teach that we are regenerated, made alive, cleansed by water baptism? Uh, that the work of Jesus on the cross cannot be said to be finished and efficacious until man does something. Mm-hmm. Now I want to read just a little bit more of, of the long post that followed. He says, underlying the idea that man by an action such as baptism can bring about his own regeneration is the rejection of biblical teaching of sin and most especially the truth that sin enslaves man, debilitates man, brings spiritual death to man. Uh, Those who hold to baptismal regeneration would have us to believe that one passes from being a natural man to a spiritual man through baptism. Yet from whence does this desire to be baptized come? Is God not pleased when we are baptized? Of course. Yet Paul said that the one who is still fleshly cannot please God. If such a person is the enemy of God, enslaved to sin, how is it that he's able to do such a spiritual and pleasing thing as to desire to be baptized? Obviously, this is impossible. Baptism signifies our death to the old way of life and our resurrection to a new life in Christ, as Paul uses it in Romans 6, 1 through 4. Unless we have died to sin and been raised with Christ in reality prior to our baptism, the symbol becomes meaningless. So we see that the position that posits baptisms as, as the means of regeneration uh, and forgiveness ignores the most basic teaching of Scripture regarding man's inability. In taking the position that they do, the baptismal regeneration is not only make man capable of things he is not, but they reduce God's grace to a mere aid and make the death of Christ a theory that is dependent upon man's act of obedience rather than the finished and effective work that the Bible teaches it to be. Well, lots of things to talk about there. I don't know where you start, but uh, I like the idea. I'd like to start with the idea. Well, you may have. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. The idea that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross cannot be said to be finished and, and efficacious until man does something. Well, if I don't believe that, then I believe that Jesus' death on the cross is efficacious to man regardless of his response yeah, to yeah. that. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, Jacob. That, that, that part, uh, are we teaching that the work of of Jesus on the cross cannot be said to be finished and efficacious until man does something. Well, if man doesn't have to do anything, then the then, converse, then this is, true. Then the converse yeah. would be through everybody is saved. It would be the yeah. universalist position. I know Chris doesn't hold to that view. Yeah. Uh, but if the, if the work of Christ on the cross is finished and efficacious and man doesn't have to do anything, then man doesn't have to do anything. Yeah. And everybody's saved because nobody has to do anything in order to be saved. Uh, and, I, and I know Chris doesn't take that view. So, we're saying that Christ has finished his work, yeah. and it is efficacious to those who will accept the benefit of his sacrifice through, obe- but through faith and obedience. Yeah. You know, if man has to do anything, if man has to believe, then, then his salvation is dependent on something he does, not just on what Jesus does. Yeah, if it, man has to confess, then, then his salvation is dependent on something he does, not just what Jesus did. If he has to repent... Then, then, then the work of the cross cannot be said to be finished and efficacious until, until a man repents. Until he does something. Yeah. And and so really adding baptism is 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 no more of a problem to that view than any of the other things that we're expected to do. And the scripture of, says to be faithful until death. Well, if, if you've <laughs> got to do that, then Jesus work. You know, he, he, it all is consistent there. Either. It depends on us to to respond properly, or we don't have to do anything. The very uh, first gospel sermon in Acts chapter two, verse forty, Paul, Peter said, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, "Save yourself from this untoward generation." 
men yeah. had to respond there on the very first they gospel. They had to save their self. All right. You know, even uh, in John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus was asked, verse 28, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. Belief is a work. Okay. There, there, are, there are responses that men have to make, and uh, and so we have to do that. Brad in Athens says, Know what is being ignored are clear passages that tie baptism inextricably to the salvation and remission of sins. I think we've reached our quota for... for uh, Big words. Big words. <laughs> Efficacious and inextricably. Uh, but here are the passages that, uh, that Brad says tie salvation to the remission of sins. Acts 2, verse 38, uh, where uh, we're all familiar. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Acts 22, verse 16. And now why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Mark 16, verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. The like figure one two baptism does also, also now save us. Again, that language is very clear. As Brad says, it ties baptism to salvation and remission of sins inextricably. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, the the phrase baptismal regeneration, uh, I, I, don't, I don't own that expression, you know, baptismal regeneration. Don't read about it in the uh, New Testament. What we do read about is in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Notice, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, I think the washing of regeneration there is baptism, uh, but it, it is it is accomplished. The power in it is, as you, I think you just quoted First Peter 3.21, didn't you, Jacob? Yes. Uh, the power uh, behind baptism is the resurrection of jesus christ it's the answer of a good conscience toward god and the power of it is by the resurrection of jesus christ i thought that and i think what chris has got for us here this long document that he sent is some information that he has forwarded to us from some denominational author and i think that denominational author is off the mark when he said that uh you really die to sin and you are resurrected to a new life before you're baptized. Notice he says, uh, 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 where did he say that? Um, Unless we have died to sin and been raised with Christ, in reality, prior to our baptism, the symbol becomes meaningless. No, I think the symbol is meaningless uh, the way he's got it. Right. Because what you do is you die to sin you're baptized. The bab. You 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 die to sin. What do you do with the dead man? You bury him. You bury him. So here's a man who has died to sin. You bury him in the waters of baptism, and it says that we come forth. Uh, we're planted together in the likeness of his death. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Um, so you you bury a dead man. You're looking at it, Romans chapter six, it, by the verse way. four. Yeah, Romans six verse four says, "Like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. We are buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life." That's the symbolism, yeah. and I think I think that this this quote that the Chris has sent us has really got the symbolism all mixed up. So. You you you, re, you 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 become a new man in Christ. In other words, you you're raised to be a new man in Christ. Well, then we're going to bury that guy. Yeah, you're burying a live man. You're burying a live man. That symbolism is way off off yeah. off yeah. mark. I think. Right. All right. Uh, okay, uh, Brad. Well, Chris is in in the chat room, and Chris, we do appreciate your your question tonight and the opportunity to discuss it with you. Uh, and we appreciate this comment in the chat room. He says, but faith or belief is not of ourselves, but it is his gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, he references there. Uh, By grace you are saved through faith, and that of not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Brad chimes in in the chat room and says uh, that the salvation is the gift, not the faith. Yeah, you're saved through faith, that not of yourself. What is not of yourself? Being saved is not of yourself. Right. It is the gift of God. Right. Uh, you know, if if faith is a gift from God, then then we would have the problem of God being a respecter of person. You know, he gave you faith, Jacob, but he didn't give me faith. Yeah. So you can be saved because God gave you the gift of faith, but he didn't give that to me. And so I'm out in the dark here and I'm lost. 
and God's a respecter of persons. That puts God at odds with himself in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where he tells us the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants all to come to repentance. He's not a respecter of persons, as you said. And so if God is giving you faith, but he's not going to give money faith, then he's a respecter of persons. Yeah, and... and uh that, means, that would mean then that, that God doesn't want me to go to heaven. He doesn't want me to be saved because he didn't give me the faith. But we just read that God wants everyone to be saved. Yeah. So the, that faith it can't be the gift that it's talking about because yeah. God's desire is for everyone. In 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse 4, God will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God wants. You know, there. Now I'm not sure Chris was suggesting this, but there are those who think that you can't, you can't, understand the truth and you can't believe the truth you can't accept the truth until you get an act of the holy spirit upon you well again is he acting on some and not acting on others now the calvinists teach that but i don't think chris takes that view and and so again we can believe god wants us to believe he wants all men to come to a knowledge of the truth therefore he's not preventing anyone he hasn't put in a place a system that prevents anyone from coming to that knowledge uh now again well, the 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 act of baptism is an act of 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 faith and obedience we believe therefore we obey just like just like repentance and confession, baptism is an act of obedience and compliance with the things God has taught us to do. And really, I think Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we, we are not diminishing the blood of Christ here. We're not, by the way, that part of the question said, are you going to replace the blood of Christ with the water of a baptistry? No. Absolutely not. You could, if, if it wasn't for the blood of Christ, you could be baptized a million times. You could you could do it you know a hundred times a day for the rest of your yeah. life and you still be lost and go to hell if right. Jesus hadn't shed His blood on the cross. All right, Brad in Athens sees a little bit of a Calvinistic uh, tone in uh, Chris's comments as well. He says it sounds as if Chris's whole conclusion is based in Calvinism's idea that a man is incapable of doing good and coming to God without God making him do it. Uh, that there is no free will on man's part in the area of salvation. That. The, and, 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 Dad, I know you've heard this many times before as well, that, you know, that, that people who are sinful can't do anything uh, towards God. They can't make any move in God's direction. Until uh, God acts on their heart. God somehow acts on them. But why isn't he doing that to everybody? Yeah. You yeah. know, it, it is the question. All right. Uh, and Chris in the U.K., uh, referencing 1 Peter 3, verse 21, says, uh, uh, The wet ones perished, the dry ones were saved in that Noah picture. Yeah, but it's it's it's, it's said figure. to be a figure. It's, a, yeah, it's, it's, it's said to be a figure, and the figure there is of of Noah's obedience. Uh, he he believed, and therefore he obeyed. And it is that figure uh, that that suggests what we are to do. We are to believe, therefore we are to obey. And there was water involved in uh, Noah's salvation, as there is water in our salvation as well. Yeah, uh, but it's a figure. It's not right. meant to be right. a a, a, right. a parallel. It's a right. figure. Right. 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 Okay. Um, and uh, Brad says, if the faith is not ours, then Jesus' words in Matthew 23, verse 37 uh, make no sense. Matthew 23, verse 37 that Brad references there. Uh, let's see here. It says, if, I, if the pages don't stick, 23, verse 37 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. God wanted them to be obedient. They they were the ones who rejected. They refused. Again, if God's acting on you, then there would be no way that you could refuse, which, in fact, is what Calvin believed, but does not harmonize with what the Scriptures teach. Yeah. I want to go back real quick. We're, we need to take this break, and, and we'll move on to our other questions. But I wanted to go back to Romans chapter 6 again. Uh, actually, I think Romans 6 is really an important passage because I think it tells us when when we access the blood of Christ. When do we, when do we in other words, at what point in, in, in the process of salvation does a person actually come into contact with the blood of Christ? We, we we really believe in the importance of the blood of Christ. In fact, if it, if Jesus hadn't shed his blood, this is all for naught. We just might as well go home. But notice in uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We're baptized into what, what happened in his death? It was in his death that he shed his blood. So uh, 
at baptism is when we contact the blood of Jesus. We're baptized into his death. That's where we make make the ultimate contact with the blood of Christ for the cleansing of our sins. Okay. Now, that, of course, that has to be preceded by faith, repentance, and confession, but it is at baptism when when that is actually finally attained. All right, uh, and uh, just a question for Chris and those who hold similar ideas. Do I have to be to repent in order to be saved? If I do have to repent, then that requires action on my part. Uh, does God do the repentance for me? Uh, again, if I have, do I have to confess my belief in Christ as uh, the Son of God? Do I, if I have to do that, does God have to do that for me? Am I saved prior to that, and I'm just confessing it because I am already saved? It doesn't harmonize with what the Scriptures teach. Yeah. Uh, and so we've got. Some and problems. actually, kind of interestingly. In Acts 2.38, a verse that we use so often, but Acts 2.38 is really powerful to this. When, they, when, when people who had been convicted of their sin on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, it says when they heard this, when they heard Peter's sermon, they were pricked in their heart. They, they were convicted. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So I think they're at the point of faith there. The question they ask indicates a, a, a faith in their heart. Well, they were told, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So believers were told to repent. Most people don't have a problem with repent. Is, it, does a believer have to repent in order to be saved? Most people would say yes. Yeah, yeah. But if he has to repent, then he also has to be baptized, because Acts 2.38 says repent and be baptized uh, for the remission of sins. Yeah. If you have to repent to be saved, you have to be baptized to be saved. The wording in there makes the two equal. Now, Chris asked the question, if it is always true uh, that God's desire, or if it is always God's desire, we all are saved, how does that not lead to universalism, which can't be true? It is God's desire that all would be saved. In First Peter chapter 3, verse 29, uh, as we referenced, uh, that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The other passage you referenced there, Dad. Uh, uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 4. First Peter 2, verse 4. Uh, he wants all men to be saved. No, I said First Peter, First Timothy 2. First, verse. That's right. He wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So, uh, Chris, again, our view allows those verses to be harmonized. Your view does not. Let me get that right. It's 1 Timothy 2.4. 2, 2.4, right. 1 Timothy 2.4. Okay. Uh, again, our view allows that to be harmonized. God wants all men to be saved, but men have to accept the gift and respond. Chris's view forces a, 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 a contradiction because God is acting on the person to make them respond. Therefore, if he wants all to, to be saved and come to knowledge of truth, then he obviously isn't acting upon that will. He's not causing everyone to be saved because all are not. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, there are probably more questions, and Chris can correspond with us more about it. Chris, thanks for the question, and I'm glad that we had a chance to clarify our position yeah. on baptism because uh, your question indicated we had not been clear about that. Well, certainly, water does not replace the blood, okay. and we do not believe that at all. And uh, we do, yeah. Thank you, Chris, for the question. We'll look forward to talking with you more on that in the future, hopefully. Uh, we'll take a break and get this week's bullet point. When we get back, we've got an interesting question from another Chris, or is this the, the same, same Chris? We've got Chris. another question from Chris. Yeah. All right, we're double dosing tonight. Uh, does God hate anything? And then, uh, well, we'll talk about elders. We're going to have to run fast through these, but we'll look forward to your discussion after this week's bullet point. Don't go anywhere. We'll continue right after this. Wow, it isn't so hard to understand the Bible after all. There's more exciting study and discussion coming after these messages. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. In the 17th century England, a book entitled The School of Manners was widely circulated. It was designed as a training aid in teaching young people how to behave in various social settings. We thought you might be interested in the chapter that deals with, quote, behavior at the church. Here are the instructions. 1. Decently walk to thy seat or pew, run not, nor go wantonly. 2. Sit where thou art ordered by thy superiors, parents, or masters. 3. Shift not seats, but continue in the same place. 4. Lend thy place for the easing of any one that stands near thee. 5. Keep not too long a seat lent thee by another, but being eased, restore it. 6. Talk not in the church, especially in the time of prayers or preaching. 7. Fix thine eyes upon the minister. Let it not wildly wander to gaze upon any person or thing. 8. 
Attend diligently to the words of the minister. Pray with him when he prayeth, at least in thine heart. And while he preacheth, listen, that thou mayest remember. 9. Be not hasty to run out of the church when the worship is ended, as if thou wert weary of being there. 10. Walk decently and soberly home without haste or wantonness. Times have changed, and some of these admonitions are not needed so much now as then. For instance, we typically have plenty of comfortable seats for all worshipers, but I especially like the the instructions that encourage fix thy eye on the minister, attend diligently to his words, and be not hasty to run out of the church when worship is ended. The fact that those instructions were needed back then and are still needed today makes me think that times haven't changed all that much after all. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hi, my name is Mike Holt. My wife and I, we love listening to the virtual Bible study. Now that you've had your break, it's back to the program. We're back on the program tonight. Remind you, this program is brought to you by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Don't have much time to talk about it tonight, but find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com, where you can take as much time as you want. Find out more about what we believe and practice and find out where we meet and how to get in touch with us, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. We're taking listener questions tonight. They're great. Uh, this is a jam-packed uh, uh, episode tonight. We've got lots of good questions. And uh, now we've got, we've got some I, emails. I, I, I gotta, yeah, we got, i got to just at least briefly touch on the email from Jim in Kentucky about Chris's question on baptism. He said, as to the question about the work of Jesus on the cross, if it were finished, Jesus would not have commanded his disciples to go forth and preach and spread the gospel. What was finished was his sacrifice. He still was to be resurrected, and we still are to preach the word. I thought that was a good observation. And then Stephen uh, sends in a response. He said, the waters of baptism do not replace the blood of Christ. In 1 Peter 3, 18 through 21, it is the act of baptism that places an appeal toward God for the cleansing of the conscience, which Christ's resurrection provides for us. It's not the water that has the power to save, yet without water there could be no baptism. Then he's got an interesting parallel. In 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman was told to dip in the Jordan seven times. Uh, it was because he did, that is, he obeyed what the man of God had told him, that he received his cleansing. There was no power in the water to cleanse But when he did what was required, then God did his part and cleansed him. Man's role, as Jesus commanded, is to believe in the gospel and to be baptized, Mark 16, 16. Uh, uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 6 that we are baptized into Jesus Christ. If you can be saved without baptism, then one can be saved outside of Christ. Uh, So he goes. So I think that's a good answer from Stephen. Thank you for our listeners for that. All right. uh, Next question from Chris. This one's a little easier, I think, and I don't think we'll have much disagreement. Does God hate anything? Are there things that are justifiable to hate? Is hell a sign of God's hatred or his justice? All right. Well, Chris has answered his question in a way that I think I would as well. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 would be examples. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, lying tongues, hands shed innocent blood, hearts devising evil plans, feet quick to do evil, false witnesses, sowers of discord. To me... Uh, the arrogance of those who scoff at the idea of him, the blasphemous society that would use him as a figure of fun, the slaughter of the unborn and other forms of eugenics, the proponents of immoral practices, homosexuality being a clear example, and false teachers who want to give a soft social gospel or add uh, constraints on it like saying uh, you must meet on the Sabbath or utilize tongues. And so he says uh, that those are some things that the Lord would hate. Yeah. Uh, Ramona in uh, in Texas is, mentions also Proverbs 6, 16 and following. Yep. Uh, um, then then yep. she adds, Psalm 5, verse 5, thou dost hate all who do iniquity. Uh, Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Uh she, she gives several others, Leviticus 20, 23, Proverbs, then, yeah, we've, got, we've already done Proverbs 6, Hosea 9, 15. So there are several. Uh, God hates the sin but loves the people. Uh, God does hate the sin, she says. He also, well, she goes on to say he hates the sinner. Uh, I think he hates the sinner in his sin, but he loves the sinner enough to make his salvation possible if he will come. All right. You know, so uh, that, that's probably a maybe a fine point of distinction. But God, God hates sin, and He hates sinners while they are sinning. He hates the acts that they are committing. But even in that, 
he loves them to the point. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John three sixteen. All right, and Jim in Kentucky has some good answers here. He says, as to the question about hate, a simple reading of Proverbs chapter six verses sixteen through nineteen will answer that question, as well as Malachi chapter two verse sixteen. Remember, that's the passage that said God hates divorce. Yeah, and uh, not uh, God's hatred. It doesn't end with the Old Testament. Jim references Revelation chapter two verse six and verse two, uh, chapter two verse sixteen, verse six of Revelation chapter two. Uh, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So we can do things that God hates, even yeah. under the New Testament dispensation. All right, great. Okay. I think that one, I think we're all on the same page with that one. So let's move quickly because we're going to run out of time. Let's, I don't think we're going to get this done, but let's get this started. Kent from Georgia asked us to comment on some things that a well-known preacher in some circles of, of Churches of Christ uh, there's a guy named Dave Miller, and some of our listeners have probably seen some things that Dave Miller has written or published. Uh, he says, Dave Miller advocates views regarding elder reevaluation, reaffirmation, and reappointment. This doctrine basically affirms placing a limitation on how long elders are permitted to serve before they could continue to serve the local church. So it would be required to reevaluate them, and if selected again, they would be required to be reappointed. I think that's really an interesting question. I didn't know anybody was teaching that until just recently. I had heard about it just within the last few weeks about a church down in Texas uh, where someone was explaining the elders serve for a term. I thought, Man, I never heard of term such term limits, thing. huh? Term limits on elders. Yeah, well, I've never heard of that. Right. But I, I, this this may be some of the source of that. What Dave Miller has been teaching, but uh, I, I hadn't heard about it until just recently. Well, Ramona has heard about it. Her father was uh, forced to resign. He, she says the congregation where my dad was an elder, they made him resign or retire. Also, another man whose son is a well-regarded minister now. No reason, just retire. I thought it was wrong. He was hardworking. He wasn't reevaluated. He continued working for the church, but not as an elder up to the day he died. I thought it was wrong that they did this to him. He wasn't old, nor had his faculties uh, been deteriorated. So uh, Ramona has seen this firsthand. Uh, Jim in Kentucky says, answer, we know of no scripture which places any time limitation upon a man who is scripturally qualified to serve as an elder. The way a man uh, may no longer serve is his death, one. Two, if he no longer meets the qualifications, of course, dying would make him yeah. but yeah. or if he's no longer able to fulfill his role due to health issues. Uh, certainly, if a man dies, he's not an elder anymore. I do think it would be possible for a man to no longer meet the qualifications. For instance, and, and I don't know if all of our listeners will agree about this, uh, uh, it hasn't always – I don't I think this is a, a position people are coming to more now than they maybe did in the past. What if a man's wife died? Let's say – He's, he's a, a, a man who meets all qualifications. He's been serving faithfully as an elder maybe for 30 or 40 years, but he's now he's an, an elderly man, and not he's not just an elder. He's elderly, mm-hmm. and his wife dies. Uh, I I take the position that he's not qualified anymore because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, as the qualifications of a bishop or elder are listed, it says a bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife. Notice, a bishop must be, present tense, a bishop must be the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker. Well, any of those things could change. Uh, Let's say that he became given to wine. Let's say he became a drunk. Well, what we would say is, well, he's not qualified anymore. Yeah. This is not saying he must meet these qualifications when he's appointed. Yeah, then he can start brawling. But then he can start brawling, he can start drinking. Yeah. Uh, no, he he must continue to have these qualifications. Yeah. So if he must still be not given to wine, then he must still be the husband of one wife. Right. And so I take the view, and I think I, I think it's a more common view now than it used to be. Uh, I take the view that if a man's wife died... He, he would not be qualified anymore, but or any of those other things. If it changed, he might not be qualified. But as long as so, he as long as he still meets the qualifications, there's no time limit no. stated in the scripture. But elders should reevaluate themselves and make sure they're still meeting the qualifications. And, and, and I suppose and to some extent, the congregation should. You know, too. let's say the man gets Alzheimer's and he doesn't uh, he doesn't 
really know what he's doing anymore. He definitely wouldn't fulfill the qualifications, for instance, the ability, the ability to teach there referenced in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. And maybe he's not in a position to see that anymore. Yeah. Maybe the congregation says, you know, brother so-and-so, we appreciate all you've done, but it would be better for you just to... Yeah. Step down and so take there is some re- reevaluating yeah. going. Yeah. Or what about the very first? A bishop must be blameless. Well, let's say that he's not conducted his business carefully, you know, or may- maybe something that he's done has harmed his reputation and influence. He's not blameless anymore. Yeah. Then it may be that the congregation says, you know, we we think upon reevaluation that you don't fit that qualification. And therefore, we think you should step down. All right. So it could happen. It could happen. But it's not something that after three years, you must be reevaluated. And if we decide, then we'll reappoint you. That's, I don't think that's biblical. And Brad says, uh, we must admit there's no example of direct teaching regarding term limits on elders. The only pertinent passage I can think of is First Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. Uh, Those who are sending rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. That's uh, speaking of elders there. And so if an elder is engaged in a sin that he wouldn't repent of, then Brad says he should step down, and I would agree with that. Yeah, uh, he says elders are not above anyone else in regards to receiving rebuke, uh, and, and I think that's right. And and the, and so what we're saying is there could be things that would cause a reevaluation either on the part of the elder himself or on the part of the congregation, and that might mean that he would be no longer an elder but the idea that you would do this on a sort of like on your job, we're going to give you a job evaluation, an annual evaluation, an annual evaluation and you know we'll renew our contract with you if you, you pass our reevaluation. Yeah, that's not biblical. Stephen in the chat in his email tonight says, "I'm glad that God doesn't reevaluate me periodically and rejustify me like so many other worldly ideas that keep creeping into the Lord's church. There's no biblical justification for these types of actions. They need to stop immediately, or we need to stop saying as we are uh, as a people." are trying to follow the inspired word. There's a scary admonition in Second John, not to exceed or transgress the doctrine of Christ. We might end up saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. I know that under the law there was a minimum and a maximum age required for the Levites and priests, but I can detect no upper age limits on evangelists or elders under the New Covenant. Most agree that John would have been in his 90s on the Isle of Patmos. Okay. Uh, and then Christian UK says, going from last week's study, where's the command example inference for that? In other words, term limits for elders. Where's the command example? For good question. Basically, the question is, where's the authority yeah. for imposing oh, term good, limits? Good tie on? in there, Chris. He says, also, as to fixed terms, I don't see how elders are elected like as if they were presidents. They use uh, using approximate methods can can and should be open to church discipline, as First Timothy five nineteen and so forth teaches. Remembering ultimately, he is under stricter judgment. James three one. Of course, the elephant in the room is what count what constitutes a sin worthy of discipline. Uh, is uh, in line anything that prevents him now being above reproach uh, an acceptable level of sin? Well, I do think that that requirement of of uh, being blameless, if he's not any longer blameless, then he's not qualified, and that might be have to might have to be dealt with. But any of those qualifications, if it changes, then we, we may have to talk about that. But term limits, no. And Chris in the chat room asked the question, also, if you have to be married, does no single man be an elder? I guess, could no single man be an elder? I think not. It says he's the husband of one wife, and he rules his own house well, so it does uh, tell us that he needs to be married there uh, according to the qualifications. Let's get our last break, and then we got one question left, and I think it's really a good one from a young 17-year-old Christian. 17-year-old question about dating. 17-year-old ask a question about dating. We could spend a whole uh, program on this. Uh, but we'll talk about it when we get back. Don't go anywhere. We'll go to the top of the hour right after this. Got a question about something you've heard on the virtual Bible study? Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. We'll be right back after this. Hello. Hey, Matt. No, I don't have any plans for Friday night. What are you doing? Oh, I won't be able to go with you to watch that movie. Because, Matt, the movie is rated R. Hey, why don't you just come over and hang out at my house Friday night? Great, I'll see you there. Being pleasing to God means that you may have to be different than the crowd. But don't be afraid to stand up for what's right. It just might find it is easier than what you expect. A message brought to you by College U Church of Christ. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. A poll of self-professed Christians found these results about their practice in prayer. 68% pray more than once a day. 
78% most often ask for health and safety. 27% say their prayers are always answered. 79% most often pray at home. Those statistics are via beliefnet.com. The Word of God says in John 9, verse 31, Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. God's Word has the answers. Let's get back to studying it. The virtual Bible study rolls along. All right, we're back. We're going to the top of the hour. One more question, or a series of questions. We got questions from a 17-year-old Christian who asked, Can an age be determined to begin courtship and dating? What ought to be the limits of physical contact during dating and courtship? Are there limits to what is appropriate to do when courting and dating, places to go, events to attend, going alone, and so forth? Uh, I think those first, are great questions. First off, kudos to the 17-year-old for considering these yeah. questions. And, and my apologies to Brad and Pam, who sent in emails that I did not see till just now. They sent in, they came in late, and, I, and so I'm going to take uh, this answer from Pam first. Thank you, Pam. Sorry for missing your email. She said, I think the age should be when they are ready to get married. Once they have a great relationship with God, then all the following will be easy. They can support themselves, know and understand themselves, ready to give their life to and for another human. Physical contact is tricky. It may be wise to eliminate all due to lustful thoughts and feelings. Think about two heterosexual male being best friends. The contact should be quick and short. In other words, I think she's saying if you – okay, all right, I get that. Activities, church, family gatherings, public places, no romantic movies, festivals, parks, malls, sport games, etc. Avoid clubs, bars, sexually explicit movies or movies with sexual content, parties that include any of the above mentioned. There shouldn't be any dating until you're ready to be married, fulfilling the above points. At that time, you will be grown and mature, so needing a chaperone wouldn't be necessary. I have two young kids, and they already know the family rule. No dating until you're ready to get married. Wow. Pam's in Mississippi, so thanks, Pam. Thank you, Pam, for that uh, those comments, and I think I would agree with those comments, uh, mostly at least. Uh, uh, good comments there from Pam. What about Brad? Is uh, Brad didn't get didn't Brad, answer that question. We, we skipped over Brad's. He was he gave good answers to the questions on baptism and and God hating things and. Uh, so, sorry, Brad, I didn't get to your, your emails. They came in late, and I didn't see them. All right. Well, uh, so the question, can an age be determined to begin courtship and dating? Uh, well, uh, I guess Ramona says she wishes she knew that when she began dating. Um, but uh, so I, I don't know that we're going to be able to find a scriptural, but I do like Pam's uh, uh, email there. Uh, why start dating until you're ready to get married? I, 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 Monty and I were talking this before the program began, and I think uh, um, parents need to be aware of the of the danger of kindling these fires of desire too early. You know, I see I see parents, worldly parents, do it a lot. You know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen year old kids, and they and they're really pushing them to get involved yeah. in dating and going to dances and all that sort of. Mm-hmm. Thing. But I'm afraid I see even Christian parents making that mistake too. Why get those fires kindled so quickly when yeah. there's going to be years and years before there can be anything done to satisfy those desires that you're getting started? Yeah. Right. I'd say slow it down, slow it way down. Monty, you had a comment. Well. I agree with Greg. You know, there's there's no point in getting these hormones in an uproar when you don't have the the scriptural legitimate method or means available to you to satisfy them. You're just causing yourself to be frustrated, and you yeah. wind up causing yeah. yourself to get in the middle of a situation where you're going to commit fornication, which we know is clearly wrong. Is in kind of in response to how much touching or whatever it would be appropriate in a dating situation. The Bible condemns lasciviousness, and it could be to the point, it might be to the, I might personally be to the point that I couldn't even hold a woman's hand without lusting over. So if that's the case, then I don't need to do that. So that, they may be some amount of judgment involved for each individual and being recognized. You know, I've known people. Yeah. That, but at the same time, if you avoid it completely, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. yeah. I've known people who've taken the view that, that, that they shouldn't even hold hands. And I always thought that was a little bit radical, but then I thought, what if my wife saw me walking down the street holding the hand of another woman? She'd think that that was inappropriate, she, yeah. you know. So maybe, maybe you know, we should be more careful, yeah. even on simple things. But you know, I think we don't tell our young people enough, give them enough guidance about that sort of thing when they're in the courtship time. You know, uh, I know as a as a young man dating. 
I, I know I was uninformed, right. badly uninformed right. about appropriate limits uh, on touching and so right. forth. And so I think I think this has got to be a job parents do. You can't do you can't teach a sermon and make the point effectively. Yep. But parents should be very involved and and open and discussing these things with their young people when they're in that time frame. All right, absolutely. Uh, Jim says uh, there's no specific ages. It depends on one's level of maturity, level of contact. Difficult to know, he says. Minimal is the safest. One does not want to cause the other person or self to lust and have evil thoughts, which could lead to sin. Things that are appropriate. Can the Lord be with you? In other words, where should you go? What should you do? He has to be your partner. He is to be your partner in life. Would you be embarrassed for him to be with you? Uh, Jim says, by the way, I would ask these questions of some of the most mature questions. Question- no, he said, I would say that these questions. Oh, yeah, uh, are some of the most mature questions one could ask. They sure, to make sure they are doing things which are appropriate with their in their relationship with another. Good question. So, uh, the did list- you did you read this from Ramona when she said, uh, I wasn't allowed to attend dances or R-rated movies? I remember once uh, on a date I went to see The Graduate and my parents found out. Oh wow, was I in trouble? That was back in the '60s. My parents did right, you know. And and although that was a bad movie in the '60s, it'd probably be very tame in comparison to to a lot of what is in the yeah. movies today. I see. We don't need to be going to well, yeah. most movies. Whether yeah, there's we're hardly on a date there's or hardly not. a movie yeah. that a Christian needs to be going. I mean, yeah. effectively, almost none. All right, Chris in the UK says, I don't know as to the age, but I would first suggest having a good social circle. And have many friends, and that one will become obvious as you are drawn to each other. But as with all things, this needs to be prayerfully done. As to what you can do to uh, what you can, what you can do, attend church services together is a good starting point. Remembering you are there for the Lord, not each other. Meet each other outside of church in public with the others present to keep each other accountable. If you are alone, away from sight, tongues will wag, and your witness will be affected. Even if all you were doing was helping each other with a class project, for example. As to how intimate you can be, I would say if you don't have it. Uh, oh, oh, you see what I'm saying? In other words, if it's a part of the body uh, that you don't have, don't touch somebody else's. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Interesting way to put it. All right. Uh, All right. Uh, well, and um, he goes on to say sexual desire in the chat room, sexual desires like a lion in a cage. Why would you shake the cage? Uh, yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's really right. And I do think that – if I were going to make a judgment in this matter, I think that all parents are too lax in what they allow their dating young people to do. Yep. And I think that would include Christians. I think Christians are too lax. And I think more caution, not less, is called for. Obviously, our young people are being bombarded with yep. sexual content in the, in the yep. media and therefore – we're going to have to help them really be cautious because all the world is going that way. Right. In other words, if you had a if you had a teenager, eighteen, nineteen year old teenager who was still a virgin, they'd be like a freak yeah. in school. Right. You know, uh, everybody else is having sex, yeah. and so we're going to have to really work hard to help our young people in dealing with those temptations. It's worse now than ever. And as a parent, you won't be popular with that uh, that rule, but uh, but you got to help your, them and see. Your kids will appreciate it as they're older. They'll appreciate it as older, but but hopefully you can get them to appreciate it now. What it's about? It's about pleasing God. You know, I think what you just said about not being popular as a parent, if we're if we're doing this, I think that there's a, a misconception that people have in the world today is I've got to be my child's friend. Right. No, you don't need to be your child's friend until your child is probably 25 to 30 years old. When your child is in those young years and needing training and, and raising, you don't need to be their friend. You need to be their parent. And at times that's going to be mean that you're going to be their disciplinarian. It's always going to be meaning that you're setting rules forth for them and, and structure in their lives. And they may not like that, but right. that's what they require. That's what God requires of us to be is that parent, not their friend. We can be a friend later. We have to be a parent first. That's right. right. And guess 112 echoes that. Uh, as for the age, we hope as parents we have the wisdom to make those decisions with our children. Uh, guess 112 goes on and says, I've heard the comment that modern dating, jumping from one relationship to another, is practicing for divorce. If the person you're dating loves God more than he or she loves you, then that is someone who should be considered. All right. Good comments there. Yeah. We could we could do a whole hour on that. Yeah, maybe we should in the future. And, but excellent comments from yeah. our listener there. 
and uh, and God bless you I think, for those. And, uh, yeah, and and uh, I hope that he'll be strong in dealing with those things. Yeah. All right. Well, good question. I thought we had some really good questions. I did tonight. too. I did yeah. too. Excellent discussion. Thanks for all our listeners for submitting those, and it's a good reminder that uh, we are open to those questions and suggestions. And our stack done. of stuff is really down, so oh, send in some questions that you'd like to hear covered. All right, we've got an open call for questions. Yeah. Uh, questions at collegeview.com is the email address to use. Monty, thanks for being here tonight. Thank you, Jacob. Good comments, and uh, Dad, thank you for your thanks, time. Thanks, Jacob. We hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's <laughs> Word. We hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word in the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.